This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2012. Today we welcome to the Journal of American History podcast Professor Tyler Anbinder from the George Washington University. Professor Einbinder is professor of history. He is a specialist in 19th century American politics and the history of immigration and ethnicity in American life. His article, Moving Beyond Rags to Riches, New York's Famine Irish Immigrants and Their Surprising Savings Account, will appear in the December 2012 issue of the Journal of American History. Professor Anbinder, Tyler, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being willing to join us. Thank you for having me. So let's begin by talking a little bit about uh, your move to demythologize the enduring rags-to-riches narratives that are so familiar and so popular uh, in, in American memory with regard to one very significant image group, the Irish who came to the U.S. in the midst of the Great Famine of 1845 to 1852. Could you talk with us some about the historiography of this group, how it's changed, and how your scholarship takes us in a different direction? Well, as you can imagine, with a group, uh, an immigrant group so large as as Irish Americans, there's been quite a bit written about them, really going back all the way to period in which they were arriving in the United States. Already by the 1870s, uh, Irish Americans were writing about Irish America, which is, which is one of the interesting aspects uh, of, of studying uh, Irish Americans. The real uh, modern scholarship on, on the group began in the, well, in the 1940s and 1950s. Probably the, the path-breaking book was Oscar Hanlon's book, Boston's Immigrants, which, which was a look at immigrants throughout, uh, which was a look at immigrants in Boston um, in the Civil War years, every immigrant group. But obviously in Boston, the, the major immigrant group was the Irish. So the book, while, while theoretically covering all immigrants, really focused on Irish immigrants. And, and Hamlin found uh, a really dire situation for Boston's uh, famine immigrants. He saw them as uh, locked in poverty, um, a, a group that really, because they so overwhelmed the labor market, were 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 kind of a trapped in the lowest paying jobs. He also focused very much on the fact that the that the immigrants the immigrants in Boston were so really hated by native born Americans for their poverty for their raggedness, for their Catholicism. And so he says both because of economics and because of the cultural milieu in which to which the Irish immigrants entered in Boston, that they were really uh, fated to have a, a really difficult time. Now, other scholars started writing about the Irish and, and, and wrote in more positive terms. The most famous of these was a guy named Arnold Schreier. He focused on the letters that the Irish immigrants wrote, and historians don't have a ton of letters from the from from Irish famine immigrants. Uh, at least half of them, a little more than half of them, were were illiterate and couldn't write. We don't tend to have as many letters from them as we have from, say, Germans or Scandinavians. 
but Schreier nonetheless focused on the letters we did have, and he found a more uh, positive story, one in which immigrants were, were quite pleased with the way in which life in America was, was materially so much better than that uh, back in Ireland. Um, and then in the succeeding years, uh, you know, the, the writing on Irish immigrants really picked up when, when all immigration history really began to flourish in the late 1960s and 1970s as part of the social history revolution. And again there, um, the writing on Irish immigrants has been mostly, has been mostly pessimistic, that they were uh, fated to, to uh, do poorly economically, that they were highly discriminated against, um, a lot of focus on, on nativism and the Know-Nothing Party and the way in which uh, the Irish had to deal with, with that obstacle. And so typically the, the uh, literature will say that, you know, if the Irish, if Irish American life improved, it was for the children of those famine immigrants and not the ones who came, uh, not the one, not the actual famine immigrants themselves. And it would have been after the Civil War and not during the Civil War years that, uh, that that improvement would have come. Let's go on a little to talk about how your scholarship begins to paint a different picture of uh, this Irish immigrant group. And uh, very importantly, you argue that what you're doing in this piece is reconceptualizing how we think about immigrant economic achievement in America. Sure. I think in terms of, of how my scholarship paints a different picture, the key is, is that I found uh, in my article what I've done is I've looked at the savings accounts of uh, the famine Irish immigrants at the bank in New York City that was created really to cater to them, the Immigrant Savings Bank. It was founded in 1850 by a, a group of Irish Americans, themselves not famine immigrants, ones who had come to the United States before and had done fairly well, but they felt as if uh, there wasn't a bank in New York that really catered to the Irish immigrants, and that they believed that that was a reason why some of the famine Irish weren't opening accounts uh, as did other New Yorkers. So they opened the Emigrant Bank in the fall of 1850, and it quickly becomes a, a, a serious player in the New York Savings Bank scene. Not the biggest bank by far, but, but a mid-sized bank. It has, over the course of the 1850s, of nearly 20,000 customers. Um, and that's out of a, a population of about you know, 100 to 200,000 uh, adult immigrants. And, and so it's not by any means the majority of New York Irish immigrants. But you do, uh, I do find that you have a pretty good cross-section of the Irish immigrant community, a small number of, of uh, professionals, um, a, a much larger number of uh, small business owners, and even larger numbers of, of artisans and, uh, and unskilled laborers. And, and that the, that the customer base of the bank pretty well matches the uh, the overall Irish immigrant population in New York City. And what I found was that the, uh, that the Irish famine immigrants saved a lot more money than the, the traditional pessimistic picture uh, of the famine immigrants would have led us to believe, that um, a large number of them have, uh, about half of them have in the bank, within a couple of years of arriving in the United States, uh, the modern equivalent of several thousand dollars, and about a third of them has uh, have five thousand 
or more in, in uh, modern equivalent in the bank today. Um, and then there's even a significant number who saved the modern equivalent of, of $10,000 or more. And, and at first I was very skeptic, skeptical about this. I thought, well, there must be something wrong. I, I must have done, done, done something uh, wrong. But no matter how I broke down the numbers um, and no matter how many more accounts I went to look at, uh, I found the same thing. Uh, that these immigrants have a surprising amount of money. And what I thought was especially interesting was that the amount of money that these immigrants saved was not uh, correlated to where in the, in the city they lived. That what I expected was, well, all right, these, these well-to-do famine immigrants are going to be living in the well-to-do parts of New York. But even the immigrants who lived in the worst tenements, in the worst slums uh, in Civil War era New York City, often had sizable... Uh, savings accounts, despite living in what what observers believe were quite squalid conditions. How did famine immigrants save so much money? Well, famine immigrants, like I believe most immigrants throughout American history, were um, incredibly self-sacrificing. They focused all their energy on saving, and that meant that they didn't buy themselves much in terms of clothing. They bought the cheapest food. They lived in the cheapest housing. Not only did they live in the cheapest housing, but they would then share that housing with other people to, to lower their, their housing costs uh, by taking in borders and so forth. Um, they just practiced tremendous self-sacrifice. And you could imagine why, if you think about their situation. The, the typical famine immigrant has not come to the United States uh, with his or her whole family. Uh, typically, what they're engaging in is, is what we immigration historians call chain migration, where a family will scrimp together enough money for one family member to go to New York. And then that person is told, you better save money as fast as you can to bring more of us over before we starve. And so that person feels a huge amount of pressure to live this extremely frugal life to save money to bring more family members over. And so that first family member will, will, uh, will work and work and work as many jobs as possible, save money, send it back to Ireland to uh, pay for another, uh, another uh, ship fare. And now you'll have two members in the United States and they'll probably room together and they'll work doubly hard to save money to bring a third member and a fourth member until finally you can bring you know, as many members of the family uh, over as want to come. And in the typical situation, there would be some, typically the older family members, maybe your parents, if you're, you know, the typical uh, famine immigrant is in, is in his or her 20s. And so those, their parents might decide to stay. And, and so even if you brought all the members of the family who want to come to America, you still have this huge incentive to save because you want to support your, your parents uh, who decide to stay behind in Ireland. And then if you, if you don't have anybody left in Ireland, um, you're saving money either for um, to move to a better neighborhood where there's less crime and less disease, um, to be able to uh, give your children an education that you couldn't have, to be able to try to start a business. Um, you know, you don't have small business loans in the 19th century the way you do today. So, so for all these reasons, saving was really important and something uh, that immigrants were very adept at. That's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the different experiences of men and women in this process. The experiences of, of men and women were, were often quite different. Um, 
if a woman was the first member of the family sent over from Ireland, she would typically uh, get a job as a domestic servant, working, doing household chores, uh, the cooking, the cleaning, the child care uh, in somebody else's house. That person uh, would live in the household of her employer. Um, the room would be free. Uh, they'd also, since they were doing the cooking for the family, they would eat for free. Specifically, room and board were included. Um, and, and so while their pay was relatively low, these, these uh, immigrants had virtually no expenses. And these, these uh, female Irish immigrants were especially no, well known for their frugality. And they would spend virtually nothing on themselves and take every penny they saved uh, and put it towards bringing other family members over to America. For men who came alone, um, typically what they, the kind of work they would be doing, uh, at the beginning anyway, uh, would be day labor. So uh, they'd be working on construction sites, doing the digging of, of, uh, of basements and foundations, um, hauling all the construction materials, so hauling all the dirt out of the construction site, hauling all the construction uh, materials into the construction site, hauling the bricks up the ladders to the uh, masons who, who worked to, to put the walls of the buildings up. That would often be the first kind of job someone would do. Uh, but eventually what I found, because what I did is I tracked my uh, bank customers um, from the time they arrived in America through the time they opened their bank accounts and then, and then uh, subsequently to see what happens to them, um, a large number of them move into other kinds of employment, either eventually starting their own business or moving up from an unskilled position to a skilled position. Or sometimes even moving just from, from a lower-paying and, and uh, more difficult unskilled position like a construction laborer to a, a better-paying one like uh, uh, being a, a driving a horse with cart, being a hack driver, um, being a porter, those kinds of jobs, which are still unskilled, uh, but which paid much better. And then eventually, of course, men and women are marrying. And, uh, you know, in those cases... The ideal thing for the Irish-American uh, family was to be able to afford to not have your wife work, especially if you had children. But what was the, the typical case, uh, even for those who had children, uh, was that women would continue to work in some capacity, but more likely inside the home than outside the home. So rather than being a domestic servant in someone else's home, uh, these women would take in laundry, um, the laundry typically of of uh, male immigrants who had come alone. They'd taken laundry um, uh, and uh, both clean and iron that laundry. Uh, they also ran little boarding houses. And sometimes these might be elaborate uh, uh, affairs, freestanding. Uh, but more often what that would mean is that the family would take in a border or two and, and the wife of the family would be in charge of uh, cooking for, for the border, cleaning for the border, um, keeping the space that the border is occupied, uh, neat and, and uh, habitable and, and some places where it wants to continue to rent. Uh, so, so women continue to do that, that kind of work even after they get married. Thank you. That's really, really interesting. Uh, given that, that we're talking about a, a large number of people, why this surprising ability of the famine Irish to save is not better known. What, what happened to this story? I think there are a couple of reasons why this story isn't better known. 
I, I think the first is simply that historians don't tend to gravitate toward sources like bank records. Historians tend tend to, to want to use things like you know people's people's uh, correspondence, their diaries, newspapers. Those are the things historians are typically trained to use. I think it's even safe to say that maybe uh, quite a few of us historians were people who weren't very good at math growing up, and, and so we looked at history as, ah, we've finally gotten away from, from math and numbers. So I, I think that's one factor, is that historians just tend not to think about statistical evidence, and especially things like bank records. That's tended to be the purview of economic historians, who, who these days are mostly trained Economists with PhDs in, in economics, and, and so not, uh, and so there are studies of these of these bank records, but they tend to be in journals that only economists read and historians don't much look at. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part, though, has to do with the way in which the famine Irish story has has become really kind of ingrained in the collective American psyche. This, this fleeing from this, this terrible uh, privation and starvation arriving in America, penniless. Um, that's been the sense that Americans have. And, and I think it's also been in some ways kind of for those scholars who work on uh, Irish-American history in particular, it, it's kind of almost a badge of honor the way that, that their group suffered. And I think every group kind of feels that way about their immigrant ancestors. They, they, want, to, uh, they want to make sure people understand how much those ancestors suffered. And as a result, they haven't really, I think, been looking out for contradictory evidence. So, so I think those two factors really explain it. And, and we got really lucky, I think the third thing is we got really lucky with the, the discovery of these immigrant savings bank records. There, there's a good number of, of savings bank records still um, in existence from the 19th century. But what often happened was that the banks would save um, either the deposit withdrawal information without any record of which people were linked to each account number, or they would save the, the information about the depositors, but not save the information about uh, balances and deposits and withdrawals once, once those depositors were long dead. And so with the emigrant bank papers, we got really lucky in that not only has the emigrant bank saved all the balance information, but they also saved very detailed information about each depositor. So what we know, for the typical bank uh, record, you go and you have a person's name and their bank balance, and that's it. And that makes it really difficult to study those people and draw any conclusions about um, about uh, the correlation between what they saved and, and what kind of person they were. Um, but with the immigrant bank papers, um, what the bank did was they recorded not only your name and your occupation and your address, but where you were born in Ireland. And that didn't just mean um, that you were born in Ireland, but which county in Ireland. And not only which county in Ireland, but which parish. Not only which parish, but which little village within the parish. So we have a great deal of information about each of these depositors. Then what's even better for, for an immigration historian like me is the bank also asks each depositor, when did you arrive in the United States and what was the name of the ship you came on? 
So we have that information too, and we can take that as, as I did with this uh, the, the research in this article. You can take that, and we can find more information about each depositor, such as their age, and by finding their age, which is in the the ship manifest that the uh, that the customs officials selected when the ships arrived in America. We can then take that, and, and that helps us find these Irish immigrants who so often had the same name. We can find them in the census. Um, and that allows us to track their stories and, and has enabled me in this article to uh, to really get a good sense of of how much Irish famine immigrants saved and, and kind of what became of them um, because these records are so are so unique and, and so so full. And and wrote about it so gracefully and articulately. Uh, and so this is really kind of the proverbial gold mine for the historian, uh, right? A kind of pure set of, of revelatory primary sources that you worked with. That, that's absolutely correct. What I, what I uh, say to my students all the time is that there's definitely a dozen doctoral dissertations and several hundred master's theses waiting to be written uh, from these records. And the great thing about these records is New York Public Library, where the, the originals are housed, has scanned has scanned all the records and put them online on Ancestry.com. So anyone, any place in the country um, uh, with access to Ancestry.com can, uh, can look at these records uh, themselves and, and, and make use of them just as well as somebody sitting in New York. That's wonderful. Thank you. So you write in the piece, no catchphrase, and I assume here you're talking about rags to riches or rags to respectability, no catchphrase can convey the complex economic circumstances and prospects immigrants faced in the United States. Their backgrounds and opportunities varied too greatly from generation to generation and place to place to be capable of summation in a single phrase. But then you go on to mention several what you call overarching principles. Could you uh, talk with listeners ab- about these? The most famous catchphrase used to describe the, the economic success or, or, or lack thereof for immigrants is this term rags to riches, which is associated with Horatio Alger. And what I found in my research for the, for the article uh, in the Journal of American History is that Horatio Alger actually never used that term rags to riches in any of the 100 novels that he wrote. Just in and of itself, I think it is fascinating that, that we so associate this phrase with Alger, and yet Alger never used it. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I think rags to riches doesn't work, and, and I think historians uh, know these. But, but I just briefly uh, repeat uh, some of the most important. One is the fact that Alger himself pretty much never wrote about immigrants. He tended to write about native-born uh, boys who would, through hard work and um, and good morals, kind of struggle from uh, relative poverty to kind of middle class success. Uh, he also liked to write. Um, he did have some protagonists who got to riches. Those tended to be people who started out well to do, who were orphaned in strange circumstances, had their inheritances stolen from them while they were minors and then managed through luck and pluck to, to regain uh, their, rightful, uh, their rightful riches. So Alger doesn't write about immigrants, and, and yet we use this phrase we associate with Alger to talk about them. Um, 
the origin of that phrase, rags to riches, comes after Alger's death when a, uh, a playwright who wanted to, to make a play based on some Alger stories kind of combined uh, the rags to riddle, the rags to middle class stories and the stolen inheritance stories and created one combination story that he called rags to riches. And it was a very popular play. It was eventually made into a silent movie in the, in the early 1920s. And, and so that phrase stuck. Um, but historians have known for a while that rags to riches doesn't really describe uh, what happened to, to immigrants, primarily because it's very rare that someone who arrives in rags can make it to riches in the United States. Sure, it's possible, but it's very, very rare. What scholars have talked about instead of rags to riches over the last uh, 20 or 30 years uh, is rags to respectability, and that's become the phrase most often used to describe what happens to immigrants. Um, that they couldn't expect riches, but that they could, they could hope for, aspire to respectability. But I argue in the article that even rags to respectability uh, is something we ought to get rid of as a phrase uh, we use to think about immigrants. The most important reason I say that is because despite what we think, it's very rare that immigrants came to the United States in rags, either literal or, or even an economic condition that one would associate with, with rags. Um, to make it to the United States, especially in the Civil War era, when the, the trip to the United States took a month, um, you had to have a significant amount of, of capital. Um, the ship fare was relatively expensive. Plus, you were going to be on the ship at least 30 days, possibly 45 days. You might be sitting at the docks for weeks waiting for the ship to leave. There's no regular service. You had to have a decent amount of money to be able to afford the fare and a month's worth of food um, to be able to make that trip. So, so I think rags is really not something we should think about uh, when we talk about Irish uh, immigrants. Even though they're the, the poorest immigrants who've come to America at this point, they're not arriving in rags. And then the respectability part, I think, isn't applicable because immigrants, um, Irish famine immigrants, rarely could hope to achieve respectability in the eyes of native-born Americans. Um, just the fact that they were Catholic uh, in a nation that was predominantly Protestant and that still viewed Catholics with a lot of skepticism and, and fear um, it, it pretty much ruled out respectability for most Irish Catholic Americans. Um, and even if they moved from, you know, a, a laborer's job to, uh, to, to something more resembling middle class, um, they still typically did not get the respect of, of native-born immigrants who considered the Irish to be, uh, to be prone to crime and drunkenness, uh, to rowdyism and violence in politics. And so neither rags nor respectability were things that, that we should associate with Irish immigrants. And mention briefly uh, for listeners these overarching principles that you think uh, are, are appropriate. First, I think uh, we should do away with rags to riches or rags to respectability when we think about immigrants in general and, and Irish famine immigrants in particular. Um, and the reason I think that is because they tend to force us to think about certain questions. Um, is it true that they could go from rags to riches? If so, how many could? If not, why not? So rags to riches and rags to respectability, I think, 
tends to lead us to ask the wrong question. A second overarching principle I think that we should we should follow when thinking about the economic achievement of immigrants is historians in the past have tended to focus on um, occupational change. Did the immigrant move from an unskilled job or a blue-collar job to a white-collar job? And I think that's something that historians have to move away from because what I've found and, and, and other scholars in the last 30 or so years have found is that immigrants tended not to judge their success or set their goals based on occupational mobility. Their, their goal was not to have a white-collar job. For the most part, they didn't see that as something that was even possible for them. Instead, their goals tended to be um, financial. Can, can I get a job that will allow me to save money, will allow me to build a nest egg either to start a business, to have for a rainy day in case I'm injured or I die, uh, or something that will help my children uh, go to college or start a business of their own? Uh, and and so, uh, so, so I think that those are the kinds of things that we should be thinking about. And the last thing I think that should be an overarching principle in, in studying immigrant economic success is that we should really look at savings. There are hundreds and hundreds of savings banks whose records are out there. Some are sitting in archives. Mostly, most of them actually are sitting in bank basements these days, just waiting to be found. I went up to Troy, New York a few months ago and found uh, the records of the Troy Savings Bank. Uh, in, in upstate New York, literally just sitting there in the basement waiting to be used. And, and, and the people who ran the bank were, were so glad to see me. They had uh, wondered why it had taken, you know, a hundred years for a historian to come and look at their records. And, and so these things are out there waiting to be used. And, and scholars and students and, and just people who are interested um, should should take advantage of these, uh, in, in part because they're so rich and in part because if people don't do this, soon they'll get thrown away and, and that would be a real tragedy. Tyler, I noticed that you were a historical consultant to Martin Scorsese for the making of the Gangs of New York, and uh, I'm sure that listeners, uh, as would I, love to hear you talk a little bit about that experience. Uh, so, please. I, I found it very, uh, very interesting uh, working uh, working with uh, Scorsese in the making of the Gangs of New York. Uh, I didn't have a huge role, I should point out. What I was asked to do was to read the screenplay and point out historical inaccuracies before they started filming, which I did. Uh, I, I met with uh, Scorsese and, and his, his staff in New York uh, a couple of months before they went to Rome to start filming. And it was interesting for a couple of reasons. First, um, what I found was Scorsese really knows his history. Um, every historical inaccuracy I found in the screenplay, he knew about and, and could even tell me why it was wrong and could cite, could cite sources to show it was wrong. Um, so so I, I thought that was interesting. And when I would ask him, well, why do you have this scene portrayed in this inaccurate way, let's say? Um, and he gave me different answers depending on the scene. One, one scene I pointed out, um, he said, yes, I know that one's wrong. But that scene is an homage to a scene in the film The Battleship Potemkin from the 1920s. And that's why that scene has to be that way so it matches uh, what happens in The Battleship Potemkin. 
and, and you know, as a historian, what can I say? It, 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 uh, you know, that, that, to him, that's an important part of the movie. Then I'd go to the next page and I'd say, okay, here's, here's another thing that's, that's wrong. Um, and he'd say, he'd say, yes, I know, but, but the, the shooting of that scene, the manner in which we're going to pan around um, uh, and show the immigrants coming off the ship and going up to a table and becoming naturalized and then going to the next table and signing up and becoming uh, soldiers in the Union Army and then panning still further around and seeing them getting on a ship and sailing off to war and then panning around still further and having them come off the ship in coffins. He said, I know that it couldn't have all happened that way, but that scene is so technically advanced that every jaw will drop when they see that. And that's why that scene has to be portrayed that way, even though I know those things all wouldn't have happened in the same day. Um, what Scorsese said to me in the end was, he said, you know, you shouldn't expect to learn history from a, a Hollywood film any more than you should expect to learn history from an opera. And I had to admit in the end, I, I couldn't argue with that. Um, that made sense to me. He said, what I hope is people will be inspired by my artistic interpretation to go read history books, and that would be great, but they shouldn't use Hollywood movies in place of real history. And I, 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 I can't argue with that, and I, I think he's right. And certainly one of the places people could go would be to your 2001 book, Five Points, the 19th Century New York City Neighborhood, then invented tap dance, stole elections, and became the world's most notorious slum. We've been talking today with Tyler Anbinder, professor of history at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Professor Anbinder's article, Moving Beyond Rags to Riches, New York's Famine Irish Immigrants and Their Surprising Savings Accounts, will be published in the December 2012 issue of the Journal of American History. Tyler, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a, a fascinating podcast for me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in March 2013 for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.